Welcome to the To Faithful Men podcast. This project started in 2006 to preserve old sermon and study tapes of Wiley Flanagan, Hassel Wallace, and Mike Strevel. 2 Timothy 2.2 says, And the things that thou hast heard of me among many witnesses, the same commit thou to faithful men, who shall be able to teach others also. Let's turn to the scriptures this morning to Matthew chapter 25. I've been trying to preach for something years now, and, and uh, I've always had it in mind that I'd like to do a series on the parables. I just, I don't know, for whatever reason, I never have done that and, and uh, until this time. And as always, when you do something in series like this, you begin to see patterns develop that you do not notice otherwise. And I've, I've been amazed at the, that the very sobering, uh, the very sobering nature of the parables. They're very sobering, very thought-provoking. Uh, not just, you know, the parables that teach a good lesson. We generally kind of focus on those like the Good Samaritan. Um, but so often in these in these parables we find uh, solemn warnings. And so we find in the parable that we will undertake this, this morning, the parable of the ten virgins. It is a very sobering uh, parable. And it is, it is at once a very joyful parable. It is joyful for some and not very joyful for others. The next parable that we consider is in also the 25th chapter of the book of Matthew, also telling us things to give thought to and regard to, um, looking forward to the second coming of Christ. A theme that recurs constantly in the Bible is the theme of watch and wait, be ready, and be faithful until the coming of Christ. That theme recurs constantly in the New Testament. And there's a, it is so um, constant that very often the language used to describe the second coming of Christ is one of imminence. That is, it is at hand. Now they've been saying this for 2,000 years. And so Peter tells us that there will be some in the latter days. Surely we're in the latter days. Uh, all of the New Testament era is referred to as the latter days, so we would think that we're at least possibly in the latter of the latter days. And they say, where is the sign of his coming? been a long time. He said it was coming. Every generation thinks it's their generation. Uh, I'm amazed as I read through the old writings, uh, especially of the, of the 16th, 17th, 18th, 19th, and the 20th centuries, uh, at how, how almost sure that people seem to be that, that the, the signs of Jesus coming are ripe and it must, it must be at hand. He must be going to return soon. And, and indeed, as I read the uh, Antinicene Fathers, 
uh, who were the ones who were the, the Christian writers who lived immediately after the apostles, they also uh, professed to, to believe that the coming of Christ is imminent. As a matter of fact, if you were to read, as you read the New Testament, you see that there's this expectation, there's this energy of His coming. And so the Bible tells us very plainly, very clearly, that Jesus Christ is coming again. Now, that should be the most exciting thought that you've ever had in your life. That ought ought to excite you like nothing else can excite you. That Jesus Christ is coming again. If you were to imagine someone to shout out at this moment any any news, anything imaginable, someone were to proclaim to Sister Sharon, call her on the telephone and say, look, we, we made a mistake here and, and, and uh, we really hate it. Sorry we put you through this, but, but uh, you don't need to take this chemotherapy after all. You're, you're healed and, and, and you don't have to do that anymore. I'm sure Sister Sharon would consider that outstanding news. Uh, you know, clearing, publish, publisher, clearinghouse, whoever it is, they might show up at your door, you know, with the cameras rolling and you won a million dollars and we might think, well that's good news. I'd, we'd love to win a million dollars. But I tell you, to the child of grace, nothing compares with the words that Jesus is coming again. Our Master is going to return to this earth to receive His people to Himself that where He is there we may be also. I'm looking forward to that day. And and I, I can truly say the older I get the, the more enthusiastic I am about the prospect. I've told you before there was a time when I was young and I would say things like well I want Jesus to come again but not until I've lived my life. You know, let me live my life first and then, then let Jesus come again. I'm, I'm enjoying life and living and I want to serve the Lord, you know, but I want to, well, I don't, I don't say that anymore. I don't fault anybody else that said that. Uh, I don't think it'd be a sign that you're going to hell or anything. It's just a sign you hadn't lived long enough, but whatever. Uh, I'm looking forward to the return of Christ. But there's something sober here in, in this parable that is preparing us for the coming of Christ. Because this parable is going to teach us one main lesson. That one main lesson is this. There are those who think that they want Jesus to return, but when it happens, they are not ready. Now that's a sobering aspect. They are virgins. They've got lamps. They've had some oil. They're, they're thinking about the return of Christ. It's not something that they're totally unthoughtful of. When the time comes, they are not ready and they do not enter into the marriage supper. This 25th chapter of the book of Matthew, um, is a part of two chapters, Matthew 24 and 25, which are commonly referred to collectively as the Olivet Discourse. It is a message, a sermon that Jesus preached on the Mount of Olives. Um, And 
is taking place very much toward the end of his life and is precipitated in Matthew chapter 24, verse 1, by these words. And Jesus went out and departed from the temple and his disciples with him but to show him the buildings of the temple. And Jesus said unto them, See not these things. Verily I say unto you, There shall not be left here one stone upon another that shall not be thrown down. And as he went and sat upon the Mount of Olives, thus the Olivet Discourse, the disciples came unto him privately, saying, Tell us, when shall these things be, and what shall be the sign of thy coming and of the end of the age? The end of this age. And so Jesus launches into this, what is to us, a two-chapter message on this subject. Now, that Matthew 24, particularly, is, is addressing the particular instance of Jesus saying there's going to come a time when this building is going to be destroyed, this temple, this temple in Jerusalem. And they wanted to know when that was going to happen. And so Jesus told them some things to be looking for with regard to the destruction of this temple. We know that this destruction took place in the year 70 A.D. when the Roman uh, general, later to be uh, Emperor Titus, marched into Jerusalem and utterly destroyed Jerusalem and destroyed the temple in, in which the, the Jews worshipped God and thus began the, what is commonly referred to as the dispersion of the Jewish people among the nations, which continues until this day. If you go to Rome, Italy, to this very day, there is an arch right beside the Colosseum. You walk down this, this avenue and there's the Colosseum, the remains of the Colosseum, and... Uh, the avenue we walk down and you look to the right here's this huge arch and it's called the Arch of Titus and across the top of the Arch of Titus is an engraving of the Roman soldiers carrying the precious things out of the temple the candlestick and the other precious items out of the temple according to the words of Jesus it came place, place exactly as he prophesied but in Matthew chapter 24 and 25, there is not only thoughts with regard to the destruction of Jerusalem, but also thoughts with regard to a greater coming of Christ. And so we find in the scriptures very often the idea of a, of a dual fulfillment of prophecy. That while the prophetic writer, and this happens constantly in the Old Testament, while the prophetic writer is speaking of some close historical event. The New Testament writers tell us that this had its ultimate fulfillment in some uh, New Testament uh, event. The coming of Christ, some event about the death of Christ, or the life of Christ, and the, the coming of the church, or the coming of the Holy Spirit, or just a lot of those things. And so, and so it is in this, that not only is it speaking of the destruction of Jerusalem, which took place in 70 A.D., Somewhere in this, there comes to be a, a transition, and people put it in all kinds of different places, um, where this transition takes place, where he's talking particularly about the destruction of Jerusalem, and he begins to talk about the second coming of Christ, the coming of the King. And so I want to begin reading, uh, before I read the parable itself, in Matthew chapter 24 and verse 36. <clears throat> but of that day and hour, the, the events he discussed here, 
knoweth no man. No, not the angels of heaven, but my Father only. But as the days of Noah were, so shall also the coming of the Son of Man be. For in the days that were before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving, giving in marriage until the day that Noah entered into the ark. And knew not until the flood came and took them all away, so shall the coming of the Son of Man be. Then shall two be in the field. One shall be taken, the other left. Two women shall be grinding at the mill. One shall be taken, the other left. Now here's, here's the pivotal verse that the parable is told to magnify. Watch therefore. For you know not what hour your Lord doth come. But know this, that if the goodman of the house had known in what watch the thief would come, he would have watched and would have not suffered his house to be broken up. Therefore be ye also ready, for in such an hour as you think not the Son of Man cometh. Who then is a faithful and wise servant whom his Lord has made ruler of his household to give him meat in due season? Blessed is that servant whom his Lord when he comes, shall find so doing. Verily I say unto you, that he shall make him ruler over all his goods. But and if uh, that evil servant shall say in his heart, My Lord delays his coming, and shall begin to smite his fellow servants and to eat and drink with the drunken. The Lord of that servant shall come in a day when he looks not for him, and in an hour that he is not aware of, and shall cut him asunder and appoint him his portion with the hypocrites, and there shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth. This is also an introduction to the next parable, which is, is on tap um, at Matthew chapter 20, 25. We know now that he has moved into a, another arena from just a discussion of the destruction of Jerusalem for this language. There shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth. This is language that is always used to describe eternal punishment of the wicked. Now, he tells a parable to illustrate what he has just said. And here we have the setting for our parable that we will consider this morning. Then shall the kingdom of heaven be likened unto ten virgins, which took their lamps and went forth to meet the bridegroom. And five of them were wise and five were foolish. They that were foolish took their lamps and took no oil with them. But the wise took oil in their vessels with their lamps. While the bridegroom tarried, they all slumbered and slept. And at midnight there was a cry made, Behold, the bridegroom comes, go you out to meet him. Then all those virgins arose and trimmed their lamps. And the foolish said unto the wise, Give us of your oil, for our lamps are gone out. But the wise answered, saying, Not so, lest there be not enough for us and you. But go you rather to them that sell and buy for yourselves. And while they went to buy, the bridegroom came, and they that were ready went in with him to the marriage, and the door was shut. Afterward came also the other virgin, saying, Lord, Lord, open to us. But he answered and said, Verily I say unto you, I know you not. Watch therefore, for you know not, for you know neither the day nor the hour wherein the Son of Man cometh. And then he tells another parable that we will consider next Lord's Day if we live until then. And God doesn't put something else on my heart. So there's our, there's our moral. Verse 13. Watch therefore if you know neither the day nor the hour when the Son of Man cometh. Now the parable is precipitated with this warning. 
Don't say in your heart, my Lord delays his coming. Now, it's obvious that Jesus promised to return to the earth, but he hasn't yet. And so there's this imagery that's all throughout the Bible. A king gone into a far country and he's gone a long time. And that's the imagery of the next parable. And then he comes back to take account of his servants. And so, and so he has delayed his coming. Not delayed in his, in his estimate. Um, I love a, a line we just got through reading Ben Hur and our family reading time at home. And, and Lou Wallace said something to this effect. I thought was so poignant. He said, when God walks on the earth, very often there are centuries between His footprints. If God is walking on the earth, God is doing His will, God is working His His plan, His program, but sometimes while we think of one footstep coming after another with some rapidity, He says sometimes there are centuries between the footsteps. And so Peter tells us that with God... A year is like a thousand days, and a thousand days is like a year. And the discussion of that is the coming of Christ. And where is the sign of His coming? Now here we are, 2,000 years after the, after the, the death of Christ, the ascension of Christ, the promise that Christ made to come again. And so much of the New Testament speaks of that happening soon. It is at hand. It's, it's almost here. Be ready, be watchful, always be vigilant, be looking. He says, now if the owner of the house had known when the thief was coming, don't you think he would have been up and armed and ready to repel the thief? But he doesn't know the hour of his coming. And so he has to make ready. Just like you and I do every night. I have this little routine. I bet you do too. I go throughout the house and I lock all the exterior doors and I make sure the lights are off and you know, you just, you want to, because, why do you lock the doors at night? Well, somebody might try to come in. Well now, has anybody ever tried to come into your house? Well, you don't know, but probably not, but you, you never know. So every night you lock your doors. Every, every day you're thoughtful, you're careful. And so it is with the coming of the Son of Man. And so it is with the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, my friends, The Lord Jesus Christ is coming again just as certainly as He came the first time. And you don't know when He's coming. I do not know when when He's coming. You know, back in 1988, some guy published this stuff and said that Jesus was coming again on October the whatever, 1988. And, and, uh, you know, as soon as I read that, I said, that man's a false prophet. Because he named the day. That Jesus is coming again. He said Jesus is coming on October, whatever, I forgot it was, in 1988. And you know, people were selling their property and, and quitting their jobs and going sitting on a hill and, you know, nobody knows that. But let me assure you, my friends, Jesus is coming again. It may be in your lifetime. Yea, we're like everyone else, every other generation. Do we not look around us and think we see that the, the, it is the, the circumstances of this world are ripe for the coming of Christ? Are there not what he describes in the 24th chapter as wars and rumors of war and earthquakes and destruction and all of these things happening? And, and, so, um, and so we should be mindful that Jesus is coming again. 
Now, there were some who said, my Lord delays His coming. Well, I know Jesus is coming again. I mean, who, who wouldn't say that? That calls himself even remotely something tantamount to a Christian. That's, that's as Christian as, as Christ. That Christ is coming again. Yeah, I know Jesus is coming again, but, you know, it'll probably be later. And, and, uh, and every generation has always said Jesus is coming again, but it hadn't happened. And, and, you know, maybe it'll come in my generation, but maybe not. And so he says, and he shall begin to smite his fellow servants and to eat and drink with the drunken. In other words, he's abandoning his Christianity. He's, he's, he says, well, I don't, and you could name anything. Smite his fellow servant. Uh, He begins to mistreat people. He begins to abuse those around him. He begins to spend his life in in revelry and partying and and, uh, other sorts of wickedness. He may just say within his heart, you know, I'm young. A person might say, you know, I'm young and, and, uh, you know, you're only young one time and, and, but I'm, I'm gonna, I'm gonna get serious about serving the Lord later on. I'm gonna have a little fun right now because I'm young and I'm strong and, and uh, whatever else you might be, and uh, you never know what's out there in the future, but I, I'm going to serve the Lord sometime later. I'm going to, I'm going to be baptized one of these days. I, I know it's going to come, and I, I want to do that, because I know that I want to serve the Lord one of these days, but I'm not going to join the church now. I'm not going to commit my life to Jesus now. I'm, gonna, I'm going to do that later. My friends, that's not the thinking of the wise. The thinking of the wise is, my Lord, is coming again, and it might be today. I might, I might hear those trumpets sound today. And I want to be ready now. I want to have oil in my lamp. I want to have it trimmed. I want it to be ready to go out and meet the bridegroom when he comes. And so this parable is a, is a uh, warning to us against, well, the very thing he said. Someone with the attitude of, well, I know he's coming. They believe in Christ. See, they're all virgins. That's been a, that's been kind of a difficult, uh, expository point that all of them were virgins. Virginity all throughout the Bible is a picture of purity and, and, uh, and, and integrity to be a, to be a virgin. Paul says to the church, he says, I want to present you as a chaste virgin to Christ. And in the book of Revelation, it talks about the, the, the virgins who will come into the presence of God, those who have not been defiled with women, he says. So virginity has always been a sign of purity and, and righteousness and uprightness. And so that's made some do a lot of strange things with the, with the, uh, the ten virgins. Some of them were wise, some of them were foolish. Some have imagined that they were all the children of God. Um, but they were just not, uh, they were just not wise. They were, they were not acting in a way that was demonstrating the wisdom of God. And others have, uh, struggled with the whole issue. A lot of the older Baptist writers that you read, Gill does this, Benjamin Keach, I've got his commentary on the parable. They always make the kingdom of God be basically synonymous with the church. And we've kind of resisted that idea um, because of, of uh, theology that has developed, in, in particularly in the Baptist church, in the last 
150 years. And so there are some who, who, who interpret the, the five wise virgins as that's the Baptist church. And the Baptist church, because they're the true church, then they're going to be the ones who are actually going to enter into the marriage supper. Now the others, they're Christians, they're virgins. They, they're all virgins. But they're going to miss out on the, the best of whatever, whatever it is out there in the future. And, and they came up with this whole idea of the Baptist bride. But back before the middle of the 19th century, there wasn't any talk of that kind of thing. It was just, it was the kingdom of God was the church. And to them, the church was all the people who were professing Christ and were, who were uh, gathering in congregations to worship Christ. They couldn't imagine someone who, who said he was a Christian who didn't congregate with people to, to worship the Lord in some public setting. And so, I don't know what all the, the theology is out there. Um, there are some who, who, would, who would say that, even among primitive Baptists, that, that these are just people who are missing out on the blessings of, of time. They're, they're not going to enter into the joys of salvation here in time. That this is, uh, but then the problem is, this is obviously talking about the second coming of Christ and the end of the age, and that's, that's problematic. But back in the earlier writings, and, and as I see it, and I shall describe it, I believe that the five wise virgins are true and faithful Christians. The five foolish are professors. They're not true. And I think the, the obvious, uh, the obvious nature of that is brought out by the last thing that happens here. And I want to go back and say a little bit more about the virgins, but, um, when the five foolish virgins finally get some oil, and they finally show up at the marriage supper of, of, uh, of the bridegroom, then the door shut. And they begin to bang on the door. And they say this, Lord, Lord, open to us. And then Jesus will come and say to them, I don't know you. Now we're reminded of that passage in Matthew chapter 7, verse 22, where Jesus said this, Many shall say unto me in that day, Lord, Lord, they profess Him as Lord. They believe that, that Jesus is, is the Lord. They believe, that, they believe in God. They believe that Jesus is even the Son of God. Many will say unto me, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in Thy name, and in Thy name have done many wonderful works, and in Thy name have cast out devils? Then these chilling words from Jesus then I will profess unto them, Depart from me, ye that work iniquity, I never knew you. Now this word know here is very important. You remember uh, several, a couple of months ago, I preached a message here on, on comparing and contrasting omniscience with foreknowledge. And this knowledge here, I, I, I know you not, does not mean that Jesus doesn't know who they are, because he knows everything. Jesus knew who these virgins were. It doesn't mean he had no uh, recognition of their existence. For indeed he did, as he knows all things. But the word is used to describe an intimate knowledge, a relationship, a knowledge of relationship. You know by relationship. And as I've said repeatedly here, the word is constantly used in the Scriptures to describe the most intimate relation between a husband and a wife. Adam knew his wife and she conceived and bare a son. And so when Jesus says here, I know you not, he is telling us here 
we have no relationship. And so it is that that uh, the Bible tells us that God knows His own. Jesus said this in John 10. I know my sheep and am known of mine. Jesus would never say to one of His sheep, I know you not. I don't, I don't love you with this relationship. I do not have this relationship with you. Jesus would never say that to His sheep. But to one who was a pretender... He would say, I don't know you. He says, he says, I never knew you in Matthew chapter 7. Depart from me, ye that work iniquity. Now here's where the chilling part comes. Because they said, Lord, Lord. And they said, have we not prophesied in thy name, preached? And in thy name have done many wonderful works? Have we not done good works and, and, and given to the poor and done alms? Have we not done all those things? And in thy name? Have cast out devils? What spiritual powers even? He says, I will profess to them I never knew you. Now, I'm going to tell you something, my dear friends. This ought to be chilling to you. If this is not chilling to you, um, I pity you. Let, let none of us be of such an arrogant nature that to say, well, <laughs> I'm glad that doesn't apply to me because if, if, if every one of us were to look in his heart, he would see coiled within his own soul all of the signs of hypocrisy. Did we not confess just a couple of weeks ago that we all, at least I confess for you, <laughs> uh, and, and I hope that you felt that yourself, did, did we not all confess within our souls that we feel sometimes to be Pharisees? That sometimes we feel ourselves to just be pretenders. Sometimes we just find ourselves going through the motions without a real heart for God. Which is what the Pharisees did. That was the religion of the Pharisees. And that was the religion of these, of these foolish virgins here because they had no oil in their lamp. Well, lots of commentary on what the oil represents. The Holy Spirit, the Word of God, obedience, whatever. For whatever reason, their lamp, which was necessary to light their way, to meet the, the bridegroom as he came was not functional at the, at the needed moment. And so, as it was in the days of the early church, so it is today, there are many false professors of religion out there. There are many who, who name the name of Christ, who say, Lord, Lord. Do we not see that constantly in all of the religious news that, that there are people out there who are so lost, at least theologically lost, we would not hopefully judge their final destiny in their soul, but they are, they have so theologically lost their way that they, they don't even know if Jesus was really God. They don't know if the Bible is really the Word of God. Can you imagine in religious institutions, in religious establishments that there's such a thing as a debate over whether or not the Bible is the inspired Word of God? Who could imagine such a debate? Who would take the opposite side and say, well, no, I don't believe it's the inspired Word of God because I don't think this part, this part, this part is applicable to, for today. Of the homosexual debate that's, that's going on in the Anglican church, say they, well, they, the, the writers just didn't, they couldn't imagine 
the, the, uh, the psychological and biological advances that were made today. So they were just mistaken about those things. Listen, who wrote the Bible? Men wrote as they were moved by the Holy Spirit of God. And so we believe that the Bible is God-breathed. It is inspired of God. This is the Word of God. Now, to us, there's no debate here. But to a lot of people, there's debate. To us, there's no debate about the divinity of Christ. Jesus Christ was God in the flesh. Jesus Christ not only was a great teacher, He was a miracle worker and He was God in the flesh. I'm real interested about this new movie they got out. The Gospel of John. Y'all heard about that? I went to see that, and I recommend it. I, I, it's, it's a little tedious to sit down and read the Gospel of John in one sitting. It's a long, but I, I was so thankful that someone just let the Bible speak. Where the Bible spoke, it did it. He raised people from the dead. He raised people from the dead. When he fed the five thousand, uh, whoever put the movie together didn't have uh, didn't have Jesus coming with. Uh, you know, the little boy that came up with five loaves and fishes, and then all of a sudden everybody else everybody else had been hoarding bread, you know, in their in their robes. And they were so ashamed by what the little boy did when he offered to share his, they all brought theirs out too. And that's where enough came to feed five thousand. Why would you want to give some kind of human explanation for a miracle that Jesus performed? Well, that's because there are a lot of people who are fruitless professors. Not only that, there are many people in our day and age who are who continue to love darkness rather than light because their deeds are evil. They are, as I described last Sunday, of the, of the seven women described in Isaiah, who want to be married to this man. They want his name, they said, but we don't want to wear his clothes. We, don't, we want to wear our own clothes. We want his name to take away our reproach, but we will, our, we will wear our own apparel. We're going to do our own thing. Let me tell you, my friends, Christianity is not an amalgamation of everybody doing his own thing. Christianity is a collection of coming together of a body of believers whose hunger is to do the will of God. Now, none of us do it perfectly. But all of these warnings in the Bible, these exhortations in the Bible are real. People wonder about Ephesians, I mean, uh, Hebrews chapter 6 and, and the direness of, of the warning given there. If anyone have tasted of the heavenly powers and the world to come if he shall fall away to renew them again into repentance seeing they crucified themselves afresh the son of God put him to an open shame well the theological debate there is are those really children of God or are they or are they false professors or or are they people who have been truly born of the spirit of God but lost their salvation well we don't believe they lost their salvation of course but we believe in eternal security we believe in the perseverance of the saints and so, and so we, most people who have a Calvinistic bent will interpret that as, as being that they were false professors. But what is, they both miss the point here. The point is this. If you, or I, ever in the course of our lifetime, begin to say within our hearts, my Lord delays his coming. I'm going to get serious about God someday, but not today. I've got some drinking to do. I've got some partying to do. I've got some matters of vengeance I need to take care of. I've got some debts to settle, some scores to settle. 
I'm not really ready yet to commit my life to Christ, take up my cross and follow Him and be a part of His church and love Him and serve Him with the people of God. Maybe someday, but not today. I mean, I love Jesus, Madeline. I, I love I love Jesus, and I, I I want to serve the Lord, but you know I'm not really into all this other stuff. Not yet. Ah, to such an one, hear these words. I know you not. That is not the thinking. That is not the language of those who understand the grace of God, and are the recipients of that grace. And so we have before us here a chilling parable. We have a joyful parable. The chilling of which we have spoken. The joyful is this. My friend, those of, those of us who, who long for the return of Christ, those who long for His appearing, those who, who are in the struggle and in the battle and trying to live according to the precepts of God, albeit imperfectly from day to day, there's one thing that we long for above all other things, and that would be for Jesus to return to this earth. For Jesus to come again, to receive His people to Himself, that we might live with Him in glory someday. So while there's a chilling aspect to this, to this parable, indeed there's a joyful aspect to this parable. Paul puts it this way in 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, and maybe 2 Thessalonians. Anyway, he says, to you who are troubled, and do we not experience troubles and difficulties and heartache and problems while we live here in this world? To you who are troubled, he said, rest with us. Take, take comfort in this thought. That when our Lord Jesus Christ shall be revealed from heaven, in flaming fire, taking vengeance on them that know not God and obey not the gospel. And then he goes on to say that they, that when he comes again, that he will receive his people to himself. Now, who they all are, you know, in the debate, you know, I'm one of those who thinks we ought to be awfully careful about who we think is going to hell and who's not. That's not your place to judge. It's not my place to judge. Who's going to hell and who's not. Um, who's going to heaven and who's not. But it is our place to judge this. It is our, ours to judge truth. And what is truth and what is right. And so we do not walk in this nebulous, namby-pamby religiosity that's out there in the world that where anything goes, whatever you believe is okay. That's not okay. I saw a book. I was grateful that it was confined to the cell for 25-cent paperback at the library uh, the other day that was very, very popular uh, 30 years ago called I'm Okay, You're Okay. And basically, it was kind of the beginning of this whole transactional analysis that came into play that that, uh, you know, whatever is okay for you may not be okay for someone else. And whatever is okay for them might not be okay for you, but I'm okay and you're okay. And we don't even have to, we can all be right. You know what? We can't all be right. Somebody's right and somebody's wrong. Now, what our place is to say what's right. It's right to believe the Bible is the inspired Word of God. It's right to believe that Jesus is God in the flesh. It's right to believe that God has ordained that there be sexual purity while people live here in this world and that marriage should be between a man and a woman. It should be for life. That's right. And anything else is wrong. And no amount of wrangling can make right wrong or make wrong right. And so we want to be found contending for the truth. And I believe that's how we keep our lamps burning.
We keep our lamps trimmed. We love the truth. We invest in the truth. We search for the truth. We embrace the truth as it is presented in the Word of God. And as we do that, my friends, we keep pulling our lamp. Notice this. They came to those who had oil in their lamps and said, give us some of your oil. They said, no, we can't do that. You go, you go and buy from those who buy and sell. Well, the fact of the matter is, you know, I can't give it to you and you can't give it to me. We're dependent upon God to give us His truth, to give us His Spirit, to give us the power to live for Him while we walk here in this world. And so he says here, Watch, therefore, for ye know neither the day nor the hour wherein the Son of Man cometh. Now, to the, to the Jews of the first century, Jesus is telling them, Be watchful, because there's destruction coming upon this land. But for Christians in every age, the word here is be watchful and ready and sober and vigilant. All those words that's used to describe this. Because, my friends, your Lord cometh. He is coming again to receive His people to Himself. And you and I ought to live every day in that expectation. It'd make a difference where you went. It'd make a difference on what you looked at. It'd make a difference what you said. How you treated people. Um, it would make a difference. And may God bless us to live every day of our lives in that expectation. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we're grateful for Your Word that not only guides us into truth, but warns us of apathy. Warns us of laziness. And Lord, we take that warning to heart because we, we know that there are many apathetic tendencies in our own heart. Yea, Lord, if we're honest with ourselves, we, we think sometimes He will not come back today. And I will do better tomorrow. Lord, I pray that You would bless us to be faithful to you today. Lord, we'd love for you to come back right now. Here we all are dressed up sitting in church. Lord, tomorrow when things are difficult and life is being faced and our husbands or our wives or our kids or our parents aggravate us or we're faced with some temptation or trial or testing, Father, help us every day to live for you. For we are weak creatures of dust and ashes and have no strength in ourselves. And so, Lord, bless us to think every day, my Lord comes, I want to be prepared for him, to go out to meet him, to love him. In Jesus' name we pray. Thank you for listening. Don't forget to subscribe and share with a friend. Be steadfast, unmovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord. For as much as ye know that your labor is not in vain in the Lord.